Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group is calling for 1 million more homes to be made available for social rent by 2033. It was the end. I was sick at heart, said Margaret Thatcher, recalling the totemic moment in 1990 when she was finally brought down by her own MPs. What grieved me was the desertion of those I'd always considered friends and allies, and the weasel words whereby they'd transmuted their betrayal into frank advice and concern for my fate. The atmosphere that night, she added, was like witchery, like the three witches in Macbeth. The plot to topple Britain's first female Prime Minister is the most notorious political coup this country has known in modern times. The tear-streaked face peeking out from the window of the moving car, that final valiant appearance in the House of Commons, the sheepish-looking Tory cabinet ministers who delivered the killer blows. These are the images of political betrayal in this country, the toppling of great power from within. It was a personal betrayal, treachery with a smile on its face. This is Caroline Slowcock, who served as Thatcher's private secretary during her last 18 months in office. She couldn't believe Geoffrey Howe's speech in the House of Commons, such a personal attack. The conflict of loyalty to my right honourable friend, the Prime Minister, and of loyalty to what I perceive to be the true interest of this nation, has become all too great. They worked very closely. They were brothers and sisters in arms. And to see him turning on her and then later her ministers telling her that she was not going to have the support of the MPs and the party, it was an enormous sense of personal betrayal for her. The takedown of Thatcher sticks so long in the memory, in part because she'd at times seemed almost invincible, famously vowing to go on and on and on. She'd had three highly successful election victories and she was a massive figure on the international stage. And um, I think she felt very secure. But at the same time, there was a kind of relationship issue, I suppose, in some ways, happening between her and Geoffrey Howe. They were kind of locking horns over a question around Europe, which was sort of the seeds of the problems that were eventually to bring her down. I think people within number 10, we were in our own bubble, I think, and people largely thought that she was invulnerable, partly because of those massive election victories. People didn't see the end coming. Even after failing to win an outright majority following the first leadership challenge by her Tory nemesis, Michael Heseltine, Thatcher, stuck in Paris for a world summit, 
vowed to fight on. She was incredibly good at compartmentalising things and she really sort of did bear down on the job. But in the last few days of this, obviously, everything went out of the window other than survival. And, you know, she was in crisis after crisis meeting with people involved in her leadership campaign, the chief whip, the um, chairman of the 1922 committee and so forth, trying to find a way through. And obviously at that point, all other governments stopped. What's it like to be inside Downing Street when the forces are swirling against you? When supposed colleagues meet in dusty rooms and quiet houses around Westminster to plot your downfall? It was extraordinary. I think we probably all stopped working. When she came back from the Paris summit to consider what to do, we we sort of went down to the door of number 10 and greeted her as she came in, just to give her emotional support. When she came back, from um, the meetings with the secretaries of state, you know, her cabinet ministers who told her that they thought that she couldn't win. It was very striking, actually, just how kind of everybody pulled together around her at that time, you know, very different from what's been happening with Boris Johnson. I can't help but uh, think. And on the evening when she decided, you know, she was going to make the decision, having talked to her cabinet ministers about whether she would go on or not, Bernard Ingham, went in and she said in tears the power's draining away from me and he said whatever others think number 10 is behind you and that was you know absolutely true and and everybody right across the building was you know waiting to see what would happen and on the day that she resigned the atmosphere was terrible really I mean just the sadness of it as I sat there and she started to read out her statement and started crying and couldn't complete the words at first then eventually managed to stumble through. I found myself with tears in in my eyes too. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at how you perform a political coup and what it's like to be a Prime Minister brought down from within. The most surprising thing about political coups in this country is not so much how often they're attempted but how often they fail. Prime Ministers, on the whole, are more secure than they realise, than the rest of us realise. We spend a huge amount of time in politics speculating about an imminent fall of a Prime Minister, and it rarely happens. This is the veteran political journalist and author, Steve Richards. To take a couple of examples, from 1968 onwards, Harold Wilson thought, and many others thought, he was about to be toppled. He lasted another six years. John Major, endless speculation that he was about to be toppled. He ruled for seven continuous years, and it took an election to get him out, not an internal coup. It very rarely happens successfully. The thing to remember if you're an MP plotting an internal coup is that what matters first and foremost are the views of your fellow MPs. What we're talking about here, remember, is bringing down a Prime Minister outside of the normal election cycle. So the views of voters, ordinary people, they don't actually matter, at least not directly. Although, of course, your fellow MPs are more likely to continue supporting a leader who is popular with voters than one who isn't. Now, each political party has its own rules about how their leader is selected and deposed. So precisely how you topple a Prime Minister depends on which party you and they belong to. 
But as a rule of thumb, the party's MPs generally get to decide whether or not a leadership contest should take place, and, crucially, who is standing in it. That's thousands of activists, local councillors, door knockers, swivel-eyed loons and so on all around the country. They get to vote on which of those candidates should become leader, and so, if your party's in power, becomes Prime Minister. So the central challenge for any MP plotting a coup is first and foremost to win over enough of their fellow MPs to trigger a leadership contest and force out the existing Prime Minister. And this, as Steve Richards told me, is not as easy as it sounds. I think there are two factors which make it very difficult for a potential Prime Minister to topple an existing Prime Minister. One is the power of prime ministerial patronage. It's vast and only a prime minister can offer glittering appointments and roles and honours to the MPs who, in the end, are the agents of change. The other point is that for a potential prime minister to appear disloyal to an existing one, alienates quite a lot of the membership, even if the membership is restless with the existing ruler. And that presents the potential candidates with all kinds of dilemmas. Do they retain or express complete loyalty and therefore risk being contaminated by a doomed prime minister? Do they hint at distances, in which case they risk alienating, in effect, their electorate, which isn't all of us, but the party membership and MPs? And these things sometimes reduce potential prime ministers to paralysis and giving space for the existing one to last a bit longer. Steve Richards' recent book, The Prime Ministers We Never Had, includes pen portraits of numerous politicians from down the years who plotted against their leaders, but still never made it to the top. Most famous among them is, of course, Michael Heseltine, who launched the leadership challenge in 1990 which brought down Thatcher, but who was then beaten in the subsequent contest by John Major. In a way, Michael Heseltine is the only model potential prime ministers who want to topple a prime minister have got, because for all the speculation that someone's about to make a challenge, few do. He did, and of course famously didn't, acquire the crown. And ever since there's been an assumption that the person perceived to have committed the act of regicide cannot succeed. Now that might not be true, but we don't know because he is the model. I think his problem was that he was on the back benches for a long time waiting. He resigned from the cabinet in January 1986 and didn't make his move until the autumn of 1990. And all that time, there was speculation about whether he would, how he would do it. Every interview he gave, he was asked about whether he wanted the job and so on. And it was just too long. Even those who were beginning to turn against Thatcher themselves viewed him with deep suspicion. And he was doomed, I think, never to get it on that basis. You cannot be seen to be too keen to get that top job or else every move you make, whether you cross the road, it's seen through that prism of challenging the existing ruler. And it's very dangerous. The man who defeated Heseltine, John Major, would soon face his own band of plotters. He famously nicknamed them the Bastards. 
who hated his position on Europe and wanted to bring him down. By the mid-1990s, Major's poll ratings were dire. He was leading a minority government which frequently lost votes in the Commons. In short, a coup looked on the cards. But Major had a plan to ward it off. John Major did something both clumsy and clever. Looking back, it is completely surreal. He stayed on as Prime Minister, but resigned as leader of the Conservative Party to take part in a leadership contest in which he himself would be a candidate. But actually, it sort of worked in the sense that it flushed out all these potential Prime Ministers who ached to get that job. Uh, Michael Portillo, then the darling of the Thatcherites, uh, agonised about standing and didn't. Ken Clark and Michael Heseltine, who were seen as possible successors, were actually quite close to him politically and therefore couldn't and didn't stand. And his only candidate was uh, opponent was John Redwood, who he beat, not by an absolutely overwhelming margin, but enough to give him breathing space to stagger on. So here was someone tormented by speculation that he was about to be toppled. Not once did he face a challenge from a credible cabinet minister, and only the electorate removed him. But the Heseltine rule that he who wields the knife shall not wear the crown does not entirely ring true in the case of Gordon Brown, a politician who privately pressured Tony Blair to step down for years, and who ultimately succeeded in forcing him from office long before he wanted to go albeit without the ugly spectacle of an actual leadership challenge. Well, Gordon Brown is different in a couple of ways, really. First of all, he's a rare example of a serving chancellor becoming prime minister. Uh, Rishi Sunak, take note, most serving chancellors are seen as a likely next prime minister and never succeed. Ken Clark, going back a long way, Rab Butler, Roy Jenkins, uh, they never got it, Dennis Healy. Gordon Brown did, but it was the most fraught dance where from basically the election of 2001 onwards, Gordon Brown wanted at some point soon <laughs> to take over from Tony Blair. And in a way, it was a dance between the two of them and their two sets of advisers. It took the form of Gordon Brown saying to Tony Blair on a regular basis, You've got to go. When are you going to go? Um, and that was combined with a growing number of coordinated plots, really, to undermine the Blair leadership from the passionate followers of Gordon Brown within the Treasury and within the Labour Parliamentary Party. And in the end, it succeeded, but it took a hell of a long time. And it was corrosive. Brown was more willful and focused and determined than any other of the potential prime ministers I've come across who failed to get it. He was not going to move until at some point he got into number 10. And in the end, he got there. Uh, in his view, and rightly, it was far too late. But he did succeed where many others failed. But boy, did it take willfulness and uh, an aggressive form of politics to do it. Brown, of course, would soon face his own plotters once ensconced in number 10. On a number of occasions, senior ministers staged dramatic resignations in the hope it would flush out a possible successor, chiefly David Miliband, to challenge him. 
but Miliband famously hesitated, and Brown survived to lead Labour into the next election and out of government for many years to come. The David Miliband example is a really interesting one for those contemplating or daring to wonder whether they might succeed Boris Johnson. First of all, it's very flattering to read all the time uh, that you would be more successful as a prime minister than the current occupant. And David Miliband read a lot of those kinds of columns for a period of time. And he dared to wonder whether he was the successor. Uh, he then made a mistake, which many potential candidates do, of starting to write articles which were ambiguous. Uh, they seemed to imply criticism of Gordon Brown, um, but it was quite hard to work out what, what form the criticism took. And I think that reflected the deep uncertainty within his own mind as to whether he would make a challenge or not. And that carried on for a long time. And in the end, of course, he didn't. And people say, oh, you know, it's pathetic. He, you know, it was one of the factors which perhaps cost him the leadership in 2010, that he wasn't leaderly enough. Now, actually, I think his mistake was a different one. If he had challenged Gordon Brown, all hell would have broken loose and he might not have won. But therefore, he shouldn't have given any indication he was about to do so or was willing to do so. And that's what candidates in the current situation have to calculate as well. How far do they go in indicating they might make a move? And if they don't, are they sort of seen as lacking the leaderly muscularity required in such dramatic circumstances? But he kind of half went for it, but not wholly in his own mind and indeed in his own actions. It's long been a truism of British politics that when Prime Ministers are forced to step down, they're generally replaced by one of their closest colleagues, a senior member of the Cabinet. Michael Heseltine attempted his putsch from the back benches, of course, but in the end it was Chancellor John Major who seized the crown. Gordon Brown was also Chancellor, Jim Callaghan was Foreign Secretary, Winston Churchill was First Lord of the Navy when Neville Chamberlain was forced to quit. In fact, as far as I can tell, no MP had ever become Prime Minister direct from the back benches, up until July 2019, when one Alexander Boris de Pfeffel Johnson succeeded Theresa May. We're going to restore trust in our democracy. Johnson had, of course, positioned himself perfectly as the carrier of the Brexit flame and the darling of the Tory grassroots by quitting the government over May's Brexit plans after she presented them to the Cabinet at Chequers in July 2018. Given that this is Brexit in name only, I'm, of course, unable to accept it. But it was not Johnson himself who brought down the Prime Minister the following year. Indeed, he even buckled and voted for her Brexit deal the third time she brought it before MPs. No, it was a holdout band of Tory MPs who called themselves, and sorry about the cringe here, the Spartans, after the valiant warrior citizens of ancient Greece. These were, and are, a group of hardline Brexiteers who wanted what they saw as a clean break from Europe, come what may and were prepared to topple their own Prime Minister to get it. I'd served in the, in the Territorial Army during the Cold War. You know, I understood the concept of, you know, a hierarchy and discipline. 
And uh, I think I would have called myself a, a party loyalist. Um, and up until the whole battle for Brexit, as I call it, uh, I pretty much was. This, as you may have guessed, is Marc Francois, chairman of the backbench grouping of Eurosceptic Conservative MPs, known as the European Research Group, or ERG. His recent self-published memoir, Spartan Victory, charts in minute detail how the ERG plotted tirelessly against Theresa May after concluding that her form of Brexit was not what they considered to be Brexit at all. I've never voted against my party on a three-line whip on anything until I voted against them on meaningful vote one uh, as part of Brexit. I might have made, you know, reservations in private about one policy or another, but I never felt so strongly that I went through the no lobby against the three-line whip, that this was different. Theresa May, when she set out, said Brexit means Brexit. She then gave a speech at Lancaster House, which outlined very much a free trading, you know, friendly relationship with the EU, but if you like a clean break. And obviously Eurosceptics like me were very reassured by that. But by the time that we got to Chequers in the summer of 2018, for whatever reason, she'd completely changed her direction and that basically meant we would stay very closely aligned to EU rules and regs, even though we'd left the European Union. So obviously, for us, that was completely against the spirit of the referendum. That's so then David Davis resigns after Chequers, Boris Johnson resigns very shortly afterwards. And then in Essex Patois, it all kicks off. Mr Speaker, <clears throat> it is not too late to save Brexit. Inside Downing Street, Theresa May's chief of staff, Gavin Barwell, knew immediately that the PM had a serious problem. From the moment that David Davis resigned from the cabinet and Boris followed him, we were behind the eight ball and in, you know, we were in trouble. Uh, and it, it felt particularly that you were f fighting a war on two fronts. And it was kind of frustrating that, that basically the, the, the right wing of the Tory party was accusing us of surrendering to Europe. And like Europe was refusing to accept our surrender and actually saying, we don't like this deal at all. It's too much in the UK's interest. And it, it drove me nuts. I was like, just listen to yourselves, both. You can't both be right. If you'd had the party completely behind you, you might have been able to make more progress in the negotiations. And if you'd been able to show the party, Chequers will get us Brexit and it will work, they might have lived with it. But the absence of either of those things, you were in, you were in a really difficult situation. Barwell and other senior Downing Street aides, joined on occasion by the PM herself, held a series of meetings with the ERG to try to convince them to back the Chequers deal. Marc Francois and co in turn tried to persuade Number 10 to change course. Neither, it's safe to say, had much luck. So if you like, for months we tried jaw-jaw rather than war-war. There were meetings at Downing Street, there were meetings at Chequers, and when the withdrawal agreement was published in November, it became blindingly obvious that they'd just been stringing us along for months. They'd just been buying time while they were drafting all the legislation. So at that point, we thought, well, we've, got a, we've got a brutal choice here. We've tried through patient private negotiation to persuade the Prime Minister and her allies that they're doing the wrong thing. 
They're simply not listening. So we either surrender or we fight. Obviously not physically, but, you know, we fight a political battle in the lobbies of the House of Commons, and that means a whipping operation. Working with fellow ERG leaders Steve Baker and Jacob Rees-Mogg, Francois set up a secretive shadow whipping operation to try to win over Tory MPs to their cause. This was now proper, organised plotting, with each ERG whip assigned a group of Tory MPs to pressure to send in letters calling for a confidence vote in Theresa May's leadership. This anti-May operation was so secret that the whips had their own code name, the Buddies, and were not allowed even to know one another's identity. However, they included Anne-Marie Trevelyan, who would soon be joining the Cabinet, and Charlie Elphick, who would soon be sent to jail. I'd been the operations officer in the real rips office during the coalition government. So Patrick McLaughlin was the chief whip at the time, not, not a man to trifle with. <laughs> And uh, so, if you like, I learnt my quotes, whipping skills in the real whips office. And some of the other people in what we called the buddies were also ex-whips. So, in a sense, we turned the whips tactics back on them. How did Tory MPs react to being contacted by Francois and co and encouraged to vote against the Prime Minister? It was a very live debate. And often what colleagues wanted was information. And... When we were able to sit down, you know, it's, it's a rather unglamorous thing. You know, we had no knighthoods to offer or promotions to, quite the reverse. But when we sat down with colleagues one-to-one -one and actually took them through the treaty, remember it was a draft treaty, and explained what it really meant, at that point people's kind of eyes would widen and often they'd say, God, I can't vote for this. Egged on by the ERG's secret whipping operation, letters of no confidence in Theresa May started to pile up in the office of 1922 committee chairman, Graham Brady. Under Tory party rules, 15% of serving MPs, which at the time meant 48 in total, must submit letters to trigger a confidence vote in the leader. Gavin Barwell's own memoir of this period, Chief of Staff, says at this point Downing Street began to feel under siege. There was constant media speculation about how many letters. Um, Graham Brady would meet with her every few weeks and you'd always be wondering, is this the meeting where he says, I've got enough? And he, he, Graham was very straight. He never told, I think, never told any journalists, never told any other MPs, never told us how many letters he had. But he would, he would in these meetings give slightly sort of Delphic utterances that implied a direction of travel. So I can remember him once saying to her, you know, I think we're getting quite close to the point or, you know, something like that. So you got a sort of sense of where the momentum was. And if you remember this period, there was some pretty appalling language from some Conservative MPs anonymously in the briefing. I mean, I remember one saying something like, you know, the knife is being warmed up and it's going to be stabbed in her front. And you kind of think, these are your colleagues. These are the people who are going to be on your side. Finally, two weeks before Christmas in December 2018, Brady announced the required number of letters were in. For Theresa May and her closest aides, it was a dark moment indeed. I can recall the exact moment when I found out that it had been triggered. If you remember, so we'd got the deal and we'd started the debate for the first meaningful vote and then it had become apparent that we were on course for a massive shellacking and so the Prime Minister pulled the vote and said that she would go back out to Brussels and see if she could get anything further on the backstop. Uh, and we'd actually had a very long day in Brussels negotiating 
flown back to the UK, landed at Northart, and as we came down from the plane and got in her car and I turned my phone back on, message came through saying, Graham Brady's confirmed he's got the... So I then phoned through to number 10. She could tell from my language and, and body language that, what the news was. We were both very tired from a long and difficult day and, and pretty down. And then when we got back to number 10, Robbie Gibb, uh, the Director of Communications, had assembled a whole load of the political and civil service staff in her office and just totally transformed her mood because he was like, right, we knew this was going to happen and we need to get up. We need, you need to wake Graham Brady. It's about 11 p.m. at this point. We need to wake Graham Brady up and we need to tell him we want the vote tomorrow. We're ready. They're not ready. Let's get on with it. But to ensure she won the confidence vote with the maximum possible numbers, May decided to offer a major concession to her opponents within the party. She vowed to tell Tory MPs just before the vote that she would not lead the party into the next election, essentially putting a time limit on her premiership. It was a significant victory for those chipping away at her authority. She'd been deliberating what form of words to use, and that's the one that she came down with in the end. And... Yeah, it was, I mean, I can remember when she told me that decision. And there were a number, a few, it was a small room, a few of us in the room, and she said, I've decided this is the right thing to say. And it was at a classic Theresa memory. After When the meeting ended, she asked myself and Jojo Penn, who was my deputy, to stay behind. And she said, you know, I hope you're okay with that. And I sort of said, what do you mean? She said, well, obviously, if I go, you'd lose your job. And I was like, <laughs> she said, what about you? Not the Prime Minister. The, the fact that her concern at that moment was for her, her senior staff, I think, you know, speaks volumes about, about the person. Sure enough, May won the confidence vote, but not with the numbers she might have wanted. Her authority within the party was eroded a little more. When the result comes in, I think she won about two to one. Um, so when the result comes in, you know, there's big adrenaline boosts and... Um, I know you're not, it's probably an unwise thing to say in the current climate, but we had a few drinks um, to work, celebrate. Work event, of Work event, yeah. Um, and then I can remember talking to her the next morning, just the two of us privately, and we were both kind of reflecting, but still a hundred odd of our MPs have said they've got no confidence. That's not, it's not like it's a triumph. You know, that, that tells you that unless we can do something transformative in the next few months, the writing's kind of on the wall long term. And so that's why I feel, I think with those ballots, the rules say if you lose, you're out and you win, you're fine. But the reality is if you just won, let's say you got 51%, 49%, you're toast anyway. If, like she did, you're sort of two to one, you're okay for a while. But unless you can find some way of getting people back on side, you've got a long-term problem. And the reality is if you get to a point where the party has just lost confidence in what you're doing, then the game is up. And, and actually, if you, look at the, if you look at how Theresa's premiership ended, it wasn't the party forcing her out. She recognised that she had run out of options, that you know, she, she believed very passionately that the right answer to the Brexit question was some kind of compromise, but she had tried everything to get that through. And ultimately, she, she is sufficient of a public servant that she saw that it was not in the country's interest to carry on sitting in Downing Street if she didn't have a way forward. And at the end, we'd run out of things to try. Mark Francois insists the aim of the confidence vote was always to undermine Theresa May rather than bring her down completely. We knew that she would win because you would need a, a bit over 150 votes to win it. And uh, the payroll vote, ministers and PPS, it was nearly 140 anyway. So she was always going to win. 
The point of doing it, if you like, was to give the backbenchers a referendum on checkers. This would allow backbench MPs who were deeply opposed to it an opportunity to express their opinion. And uh, in the end, Theresa May won the vote of confidence. She got 200 votes. But 117 117 Tory MPs voted against her, which showed that in actual fact, the backbenchers voted against her two to one. So she didn't really have the support of the parliamentary party to drive this through. That's why we called the vote of no confidence. It wasn't actually to get rid of her, though if she'd lost, she would have had to go. It was to give the parliamentary party an opportunity to try and put a break on Chequers and the withdrawal agreement. And in that we succeeded because her authority from that point was uh, reduced and she didn't then have the political authority to drive it through. You've been an MP for such a long time, a Tory MP for nearly 20 years. Did you feel conflicted? Do you feel loyalty to party, loyalty to leader versus what I believe? Or is this just so important that you felt you were doing the right thing? It went beyond leave versus remain. It became the people versus the establishment. And we saw ourselves as the kind of tribunes of the people. And in the end... And I argue this in Spartan Victory and people hopefully will buy the book and they can decide for themselves. To us, it was a, it became a battle for democracy itself, quite literally. Because if people could vote in a referendum for something, on a very clear, straightforward question, and then the establishment completely overturned their decision because they didn't like what the ordinary people of this country had decided, why would anyone bother to vote in any kind of election ever again? So we really believe that in the end, we were fighting for the democratic principle itself. And thank God we won. And that's more important than loyalty to party, than loyalty to leader? Well, well, it's one thing to be loyal to your party and loyal to your leader, but there are limits to that. And loyalty is a two-way process. I learned that in the military years ago. There's a loyalty towards the leader from the lead, yeah, but there has to be um, a loyalty towards the lead from the leader. And in the end, that one broke down irrevocably. One of the key lessons from all these successful plots against Margaret Thatcher, against Tony Blair, against Theresa May, is that they all take an awfully long time to come to the boil. Prime Ministers tend to get worn down, suffering blow after blow over many months and even years before finally being forced from office. But that's British politics. After the break, we'll be hearing from somewhere far more exciting far more brutal, a far-off land where leaders are kicked out of office by their own parties at the drop of a hat. And we'll be hearing direct from an actual former Prime Minister about what it's like to be taken down in a coup and what it's like to lead one. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has been a champion of social housing for decades. 
and since 2018, it has provided more than £17 billion to the sector. Working with Crisis, the national charity for people experiencing homelessness, Lloyds Banking Group is campaigning for one million more homes for social rent to be made available over the next decade. Affordable, sustainable and high-quality homes are the foundation of a healthy society and prosperous economy. Yet it is estimated that more than 8.5 million people in the UK cannot access the housing they need. Find out more about why this is so important and how it contributes to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper at lloydsbankinggroup.com. So I guess we all have unsavoury habits we get up to in the middle of the night, right? Come on, I know you do. Mine, for a long time, my tawdry late-night addiction has been Australian politics. I first got properly into it when I was staying up all night every night writing the morning playbook emails for Politico. Every morning from like 2 or 3am, with Westminster and Washington all in bed, my social media feed would get taken over by the only game left in town. Aussie political Twitter. And oh my god, the plotting, the knifings, the briefing wars, the scandals, the endless changes of leadership. I'm still the Prime Minister, I think, for another quarter of an hour. I will shortly leave from this Parliament. The revolving door Prime Ministership. I'm about to no longer be the Prime Minister. Canberra makes Westminster look like play school. No fewer than four different Aussie Prime Ministers have been knifed by their own side since the start of the 2010s. That's a leadership coup every three years. It's a record to make the most despotic military dictatorship proud. The most recent Aussie coup came in 2018, when the Liberal Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull, the Liberals being the equivalent of the Conservative Party here, was brought down by a right-wing faction from within his own party. It was described as madness by many, and I think it's uh, difficult to describe it in any other way. He himself had toppled the previous Liberal Prime Minister, right-winger Tony Abbott, in a different putsch three years earlier. And Abbott, in turn, had toppled Turnbull when leader of the opposition some years before that. Like I say, Aussie politics is something else. Well, the party was very divided. Here's Malcolm Turnbull, who I spoke to via Zoom earlier this week. Tony Abbott is, you know, a very hard right figure in, a, in Australian politics. Uh, he really weaponised climate change and action on global warming. It actually had been really pretty bipartisan in Australia prior to Tony becoming leader of the Liberal Party. Uh, or after overthrowing me at the end of 2009, so there's a bit of background there. He was way behind in the polls. Uh, he, he was not running a very successful or effective government. So I, I challenged him, I resigned, challenged him, became the leader and prime minister and continued to serve as prime minister until not Abbott directly this time, but the same right-wing forces in the Liberal Party that have always dogged my political career, I suppose, brought on a challenge again in August 2018, which uh, effectively blew up the government. Did you appreciate from the very start the extent to which that internal turbulence was going to make leading the party and therefore the country so difficult? Oh, yeah, for sure. I, absolutely. No, it was, it, was, it, was, 
it you know the the right wing of the Liberal Party have become uh, very entitled. They uh, operate like terrorists, not with guns and bombs, of course, but their attitude is that if they don't get what they want, they will blow the joint up. And they threaten to do that regularly. You know, John Howard used to say the party is a broad church with smaller liberals and conservatives, but I'm afraid to say that the right are now very much ascendant and they, well, they're, they're very intolerant of uh, more progressive views. Did you ever consider putting... Tony Abbott in the cabinet, sort of hugging your enemies close, that kind of thing? No, no, I didn't. Look, I, I mean, I did, obviously, you know, Tony was very keen to do that, but I, I, no, I knew Abbott very, very well. He is one of the most destructive uh, political figures, probably the single most destructive political figure in, you know, modern times. And the, I, there was literally zero support or within the cabinet for him to be brought into it because as people said if he's here he'll just you know he's going to start be throwing bombs at us from outside if we bring him inside he'll throw bombs from inside i mean just because somebody is in the cabinet doesn't stop them from trying to undermine the government i'm afraid to say you know people say oh you'd have the benefit of cabinet solidarity well anyone who says that uh knows more about the theory of uh democracy than they do about the practice the, the rumblings against you, obviously, I mean, they're there at the start and they continue through your, your premiership. What I'd love to hear is how damaging you think those sorts of constant internal strife is for the ability of a prime minister to run the country properly. Well, look, they are damaging, but they don't have to be debilitating. I mean, you, you know, you, you, you've got to pay attention to your, what your colleagues are up to. You've got to pay attention to what the media are doing. But equally, you have to keep cracking on with substantive reform. Abbott used to sometimes say, the first rule is do no harm. Well, some people uh, in government interpret that as meaning do nothing. But because everything else is changing around you, because other countries are competing with you, because the environment is changing, economic, you know, financial, social climactic, unless you act, unless you do things, you will fall behind. You mentioned the media. What what role do you think the media played in sort of stoking the, the tensions around the, the, the Liberal Party or, or otherwise? Well, they play a huge part. I mean, Murdoch's, I mean, Rupert was actively involved in the coup against me. I mean, he went around, he solicited support from another media baron, Kerry Stokes, uh, and said to him, you know, we've got to get rid of Malcolm. Uh, and I mean, Stokes told me that. So, you know, I have, I have his word for it. Um, he, his newspapers were actively stoking, you know, opposition to me. So I was always fighting on two fronts. I had the Labour Party on one side and then I had the sort of right wing of the Liberal Party and uh, particularly Murdoch's media, which is now operates in such a partisan way. Having won the 2016 election by just a single seat, Turnbull's government soon hit troubles mid-term. A centrist at heart, some of his small-L liberal policies on issues such as climate change and same-sex marriage enraged the right wing of his party. His sluggish poll ratings were weaponised against him through 2017 and 2018 as the party set its sights on the next election. When I took over from Abbott, when I challenged him, I foolishly said... We have lost 30 news polls in a row. We have lost 30 news polls in a row. 
it is clear that the people have made up their mind about Mr Abbott's leadership. And so once I'd lost 30 news polls, of course, there was a lot of uh, noise about that. But I mean, tr truthfully, our polling position as of August 2018 was, was fine. I mean, you, honestly, there was no cause for concern. The expectation was that we would win the election uh, in March 2019, which is when it would have been held. Nevertheless, though, you must have been feeling pressure at that point. I just merely mean on like a human level to be getting the criticism, as you say, a barrage from the press and then from your own side. And you know there's an election coming that's going to be close, whatever happens. What's that feeling like as just on a, on a human level of trying to deal with all those different things whilst running the country? The pressure that politicians are under, particularly leaders, is enormous. It can be very hard to maintain your equanimity. You know, I didn't read all the media. I, I certainly, you know, some people obsessively read every single thing that's written about them, every tweet, every post. I don't know. I, I didn't do that. I, I um, made sure that I exercised regularly every day, in fact, and that I slept well. Yeah, I, I think I was handling it, handling it fairly well. I certainly wasn't cracking up, as some people do, in leadership positions. And we ran a very good government, and as I said, got a lot done. And, I mean, the track record is there. But you're right. I mean, it's that the pressure is uh, the pressure is enormous. In a cycle that's become all too familiar in Australian politics, a sitting prime minister's tenure is on a knife edge. We have uh, three ministers who've tendered their resignations in August 2018, with rumours swirling of a leadership challenge a year out from the next election. Turnbull called his opponents bluff and triggered an internal leadership contest with the new darling of the Aussie right, hardline Home Affairs Minister Peter Dutton, instantly standing against him. It was essentially the same trick that John Major had pulled here in Britain in the 1990s. And sure enough, Turnbull won the contest. Today, the Liberal Party room has confirmed my leadership. But just three days later, he faced a second challenge. Earlier this morning, I had called uh, the Prime Minister to advise him that it was my judgment that the majority of the party room uh, no longer supported his leadership. And this time, decided he could not win. The successful candidate was Scott Morrison, and he won this vote by 45 votes to 40 for Peter Dutton. Coming through the middle, his Treasury Minister, Scott Morrison, seized the leadership. Look, it, that may have been a mistake, by the way, but, you know, the, these are all very tough calls. I, I've been involved in more leadership battles than most people in politics, and I know the rhythm and the and what was I knew what was going on, and this guy Peter Dutton, who you know important figure on the right of the party, uh, he was getting ready for a challenge. There was it was being whipped up, supported in the Murdoch media. Rupert had been out, he was out in Australia, and as I said, had been seeking support from Kerry Stokes uh, and others. So it was definitely on. Now I. The way these things operate, they create instability and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what I wanted to do was to flush Dutton out uh, and put him to the test as soon as I could because the one thing I was determined was to ensure that he did not succeed me as Prime Minister because he would have taken the party sharply to the right it would have been an election run on immigration, on race. You know, Dutton's only got one playbook. So I wanted to fend him off. And uh, if 
I couldn't, you know, no, no, frankly, I wanted to ensure that if my, if the party was going to blow up, that out of the, out of the rubble, uh, Scott Morrison became the leader rather than Dutton, because I thought he would do the least harm between August and the, and the election. So that's, that was why I did it. But, you know, look, it's, it's a fair question. It may have been a mistake. But truthfully, uh, once people have decided to aggressively undermine the leader, once you've got the media supporting the insurgency, it can become a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Turnbull's book, The Bigger Picture, describes the moment of truth as his fellow Liberal Party MPs hold a private vote on his leadership and turn against him in greater numbers than he would have hoped. This must have been a difficult thing to watch, surely. Well, not especially, this being Aussie politics. Well, I've seen it happen so often, so, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to some extent, but, you, but uh, it's not, some, not something I was unfamiliar with. I mean, the interesting thing that developed in 2018 was that before the coup, we were travelling well. You know, we, weren't, we were either a little bit ahead or a little bit behind. After the coup, the party's polling crashed. You know, it was hugely unpopular. My seat, which was a safe Liberal seat, was lost to an independent. You know, the the public were furious about the coup. So it was not a smart thing to do electorally. You know, Morrison won the 2019 election, but he didn't win it because of the coup. He won it despite it. So, but, you know, you had people on the right in our party, uh, and Abbott being, you know, a very, very open, you know, example of this, whose attitude was that it was better to lose the election with so that I was not re-elected, so that he could become leader of the opposition after the 2019 election and return in triumph in 2022. That was his plan. There does seem to be this sort of uh, view on the right uh, of the Liberal Party that... Uh, if you can't have a leader that does exactly what you want, well, maybe better off to burn everything to the ground. That's it's bonkers. It's, you know, that's <laughs> that's my technical appraisal of it. Can you just describe for us the moment where you decided not to stand again, and and you realised actually this is it, we're done. Well, I I had always taken the view that I I mean I had a I got a I was overthrown as leader of the Liberal Party again over uh, around climate change in two thousand and nine. And I had a very dark period after that. I sort of became very depressed. It, it was not, uh, it was a very bad part of my life, very tough part of my life, particularly for those that loved me. Um, but anyway, I, when I became leader again, I knew that unless I died in office or, or resigned uh, of my own volition, the probability was I was going to get poleaxed either by my colleagues or the electorate. And so I thought about it and I thought to myself, well, the one thing I'm not going to do is hang around, you know. I'm not going to hang around trying to revenge myself and my successor and undermine my successor. I will just get out of it. And I think that was absolutely the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do politically. It was the right thing to do for me and my family. Do you think what you did, in 2015 was so different to what happened to you in 2018? Yes, it was. I mean, it was it was different in the sense that I think I made a case for a change of leadership. I'm not suggesting the challenge to me was illegitimate. I mean, anyone can challenge the leader of the Liberal Party anytime they like. 
But the, you know, we were, the government was in a very bad shape. It was in a bad shape electorally. It was in a bad shape politically. It was a pretty chaotic uh, environment um, and rather debilitating to be a minister in that Abbott government. You know, Tony has some considerable strengths, enormous energy and so forth, but he, he wasn't a good prime minister and he did a lot of damage. But you can make the argument, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. I, I don't flinch at that. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. That, in the end, is the real lesson of the political coup. Margaret Thatcher, after all, took down Ted Heath to become leader of the Conservatives, just as Malcolm Turnbull would take down Tony Abbott before he himself was removed from office. Even Theresa May had hardly shown undying loyalty to David Cameron in the months leading up to his departure, although a plotter she most certainly was not. I finished my interview with Turnbull by asking him what advice he might have for any other Conservative Prime Ministers around the world who might just be struggling with internal divisions at the moment and wondering if they can hang on to their jobs. Well, I think Boris's situation is largely self-inflicted. I mean, you know, being candid about it, I, I think Boris has enjoyed enormous loyalty from his party, frankly, and his problems are largely self-inflicted. I think his best friend would acknowledge that. His challenge is persuading people that, firstly, that he can change and run a more disciplined ship, and a lot of people express scepticism about that. But I think the, the challenge that he's going to have is the perception of hypocrisy. You know, Jack, I mean, if people think you're a fake or a hypocrite, entitled, and you're giving yourselves privileges that are not available to others, they'll resent you for it. Now, on the other hand, remember this, Politics, our politics in particular, uh, is a two-horse race. You know, it's a, it's a relative business. So that's just like football. You know, you might be a really lousy team, but if the people you play on the weekend are lousier than you, you'll still win. So I think, you know, the, the Conservatives have got to reflect on, you know, did they win the last election or did Labor lose it? If you have an opposition that is weak or that is radioactive in some form or other, or the leader, opposition leader who people don't trust, which is the problem that Bill Shorten had here in 2019, then the government can win despite its own failings. So an election is a choice. It's who do you actually want to run the country? And they may decide, people could still decide, if Boris is still there, that, uh, you know, Boris is a better alternative to the opposition leader. I don't know. I, that's, that's your expertise, Jack. You're the man that knows all about British politics. Pfft, don't ask me, mate. I haven't got a prediction right since about 2014. But what about a few tips for the ambitious Tory big hitters around the Prime Minister, wondering if now might be the moment to strike? To finish the podcast, I asked Steve Richards what salutary lessons Rishi Sunak or Liz Truss might take from his book on the Prime Ministers that never were. My advice would be at this junction to continue being publicly loyal to a Prime Minister absolutely determined to cling on to power. Certainly if you're in the Cabinet, Jeremy Hunt's got slightly more space and he's beginning to use it from the backbenches. 
Uh, but in the cabinet, I think hints of disloyalty. Rishi Sunak tried something out last week, distancing himself from Jimmy Savile. Trigger a reaction from the loyalists to the prime minister and you become a subject of a row and you don't want that as a potential leadership candidate. You want to be seen as the future, clean, unifying, exciting, not the subject of trouble even before you've got there. So you have to play this game of declaring loyalty and it might be a long wait, it might be a very short one, but when the moment comes, you go for it. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not meant to be time sensitive, so why not have a look back through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. 